Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Taylor Hudak, a journalist and editor with Activism Munich on YouTube. Taylor reports on issues related to the First Amendment, whistleblowing, and the corruption of the intelligence agencies through an anti-authoritarian perspective. Taylor, welcome to Savage Minds. So I got to know about your work through first Twitter, because in looking uh -huh. for coverage of the Assange case, it was appallingly very little in major media. And could you talk about, first, why the major media has not covered this and how you got involved to cover this? Of course. So you're right in saying that there wasn't a lot of coverage on this case over the past few years since, since Assange's arrest. I think we've seen more mainstream outlets touch on this case a little bit, but the in-depth reporting and consistent reporting is coming from a handful of independent journalists or journalists with alternative media platforms. But I think that the reason for this is, is that journalists in the mainstream media and in the corporate media for a long time uh, did not view Assange as a journalist. They viewed him as something else. And they were also the same individuals who were, who were pushing, unfortunately, a very effective smear campaign against him. And so he didn't really have the support of his colleagues who were also journalists. And I think that that is part of the reason why there wasn't a lot of coverage. And I also think, too, that within the newsrooms, it was probably just understood that this is something that you do not cover and you do not talk about. And... We've seen that shift though over the past few years. And this happened with Assange's arrest. I was shocked when I heard some people in mainstream news say that uh, they were against Assange being charged for uh, under the Espionage Act for publishing government documents. When that happened in, back in April of 2019, we saw more mainstream media figures start to speak out in support of him. And uh, it's really unfortunate that the Guardian, the New York Times, and other organizations that work directly with Assange and WikiLeaks did not get uh, onto covering this case a little bit sooner, but I am happy that we're now starting to see these organizations condemn this prosecution. Now, for me myself, uh, I started covering this actually when I was in uh, grad school. I started following the case. I was always interested in law, and I always wanted to cover court cases just because it was something I was very interested in and I was fascinated by how the media coverage of a case could possibly impact the results of a case. It was actually one of my areas of research when I was in grad school and we had to cover an international issue and that's where I came across Assange's case. Now at that time I knew a little bit about it but I was still very young during the early days of WikiLeaks in 2006, too young to really be aware uh, in a meaningful way of what the organization was really all about. So um, as I got older and started to study journalism and media, I became really intrigued in this case. And then I also became horrified upon learning of all the human rights abuses that have been done to this single individual. And um, it was an attack by four different governments, Swedish government, the Ecuadorian government, US and UK, who were attacking one person and attacking one organization specifically. And so I started to cover that case for a very, very small outlet in Ohio. And then I had a podcast with uh, Anonymous Bites Back. And that's where I met a friend of mine, Andrew Smith, uh, who was also in Ohio. 
And he and I connected after that podcast and we decided to do on the ground actions in support of Assange. And we would uh, post uh, signs in our community and we would hand out flyers about what was happening to him. And this was back in June of 2019. Then we picked up doing the free Assange vigils that Unity for J started, but then they quit doing them. So we took it over with the support of people who were with Unity for J. And they're still going on to this day. After that point, after a couple months, I decided to then move into uh, journalism. And so now I am working with activists in Munich. We are an independent media organization based in Munich, Germany, and we post uh, videos to YouTube covering issues related to US foreign policy, as well as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, issues of free press and free speech, which is what I often cover, as well as just any foreign policy with an anti-war perspective, an anti-authoritarian uh, perspective as well. Well, it's interesting that you're working at a time when the media more than ever has become an effective and powerful ideological tool that is supportive of government propaganda. And what I'm saying is echoing the words of Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman in their book, Manufacturing Consent. It's almost as if we're living the Truman Show version of their book, you know. Uh, we're seeing with what happened right before the election in the US, how a story from one of, oh, it's America's oldest papers was the cause for that paper losing its Twitter account for about a day. We've seen since then and long before then, people who are basically accused of incorrect thought or speech have their Twitter or Facebook accounts removed because in recent years, the way that many people, even more than half of Americans are getting their news is through social media. So we're seeing a shift even from the time that Edward Herman and Chomsky wrote their book in the late 80s to today, because it's no longer print media. It's now social media is the way of disseminating media news. And Assange falls right in the middle of that because he was paradoxically the person who was covering vis-a-vis uh, -vis WikiLeaks, the crimes, the war crimes of the United States government or armies, and then was punished for this. I mean, this is quite a paradox given the mandate of journalism, no? Well, it certainly is. Journalism is no longer journalism that we once thought it to be. Unfortunately, especially with those within the mainstream press, they're really just repeating US government talking points, intelligence community talking points. There is absolutely no questioning or critical thinking regarding the narratives that the government uh, passes down, whether it be through press releases or uh, press conferences or just general interviews. I feel like there's no real pushback. And I think a problem that we're seeing happen is that media sources, they're usually using the intelligence community as their source for information or government officials, but they're not being critical of the information that they are being given. 
And I think that's because they are paid not to be uh, critical. I, again, I think this is something that is just generally understood within the newsrooms and people are really engaging in self-censorship, which Julian Assange himself said that that was uh, a problem and it will continue to be a problem as people self-censoring because of these unwritten uh, rules that they just know about that are within their organization. And that's a real problem. But Julian Assange has won numerous journalism awards and the revelations through WikiLeaks actually had real world uh, benefits. So for example, one of the witnesses during the hearing or during the, yeah, during the ex extensive extradition hearings was Clive Stafford Smith. He was an attorney and he uh, testified that while he was representing torture victims who were held in Guantanamo Bay, he was using WikiLeaks publications to make their case on behalf of these torture victims. And without WikiLeaks, also we would not fully understand perhaps the atrocities that happened during the Iraq war. It really changed people's perspective on the war and it made people realize, should we be in the Middle East? Should we be participating in this? And, you know, civilians are being killed uh, by the thousands and thousands. So uh, Julian Assange's contributions to the world are enormous and extremely significant. And that is why he is being targeted. It is also, I believe, to send a message to other journalists and other whistleblowers. If you follow down the same path as WikiLeaks or Julian Assange, you too will be held uh, responsible for doing good journalism. And you too will be suffering from torture by the state. And it is not an inflammatory thing to say that Julian Assange has been tortured. He has. The UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, Niels Melzer, visited Assange with two other independent medical experts. They each examined Assange separately. This was back in May of 2019 while he was in prison. They each I examined him separately and all came to the conclusion that he was exhibiting all of this typical signs and symptoms you would see in someone who has been subjected to torture. Um, but he's still in prison right now, unfortunately, despite the fact that the judge denied the extradition request. Wow. I was working on what happened after 9-11 and I was doing it through my anthropology in New York City. I was investigating a community of men who were disappeared by the US government, part of the 14,000 Muslim men disappeared in the months following 9-11. I remember going to the ACLU's office and they were telling me about the line of people, it's in lower Manhattan, the line of people that exited the building down the street, all asking, mostly women, where's my brother, father, cousin, uncle. And this was hardly covered at all on the media, in fact, it pretty much wasn't. When I was doing this work, I was quite alarmed, not only by the silence, but when I would interview people, they would say, please turn off your tape recorder, and they closed the door, and they would say things off the record that really, I mean, I could not repeat, but there was this open secret about what was happening. Now, that was then. <laughs> and remember WMDs? Yeah. And all of these myths were found out. And then what did we see in the run up to last year's election? Whoa, it was pretty shocking to me. I thought I was on drugs for a minute when I saw positive coverage by CNN and the BBC of George W. Bush. I mean, this is what propaganda looks like. It's 
Sunday, it's one thing and Monday, it's another and Tuesday, another. And I have to wonder if not just Americans, but I think there's a certain kind of cultural amnesia that a lot of people in the West are going through, especially those of us living in countries that have contributed to the war on terror and the global war on terror under Obama was renamed. It still existed. The direct bombing of countries by humans was replaced by drone warfare completely by Obama in the regions of Pakistan, Afghanistan. How is it that this task of reporting what has happened has fallen upon the likes of Assange? You, me, we're independent journalists doing sometimes on a shoestring the work that multi-million dollar corporations should be doing. How did it happen? That's a really great question. I think again, uh, it is people who do question the United States uh, government, people who are anti-war, and you can see that in their reporting, or they just report the truth about what's really happening and are critical of the US foreign policy, which there is a lot, of course, to be very critical of. I think if you are that type of uh, journalist and that is what you are reporting on, I think it's very, very difficult for you to make your way up to these major positions at CNN, at Fox, at MSNBC. I don't think you get there by really being a good investigative journalist and really questioning what the US role is in the world. I think there are rewards for people who repeat the accepted neoliberal talking points. Um, anybody who really questions uh, the authority, the establishment is going to unfortunately be subjected to uh, some sort of smear campaign. We saw it happen, of course, with uh, Assange, even Edward Snowden. Now he's not a journalist, of course, but even when he first, um, you know, provided those documents to Glenn Greenwald and leaked this information, uh, the agencies tried to distance themselves from him uh, and say, oh, well, he really wasn't uh, a key uh, employee with the NSA or, or whatever. They tried to spin that. Um, so I think, again, there are just, it's just very difficult to be a, a journalist that questions authority and reports the truth that is critical of the U.S. government and still make it to the, the, the highest positions in the media. In Matt Taibbi's Hate, Inc., he talks about the way that media has today an agenda of dividing its audiences, meaning it focuses on a certain audience in the same way Gillette might hone in on certain types of consumers for its advertisement. And Ty, he says that, for instance, he compares Russiagate to the weapons of mass destruction as the same fake news that people buy time and time again. Um, I still have people on my wall arguing about Russiagate. Uh, how is it possible, even after Mueller's report, he found no real evidence of, of any kind of tampering. Rachel Maddow, however, as you probably know, had nightly fits on MSNBC about this focus. It wasn't just about Russiagate. It was about her need to focus on Russiagate, if you catch my drift, where media has been allowed to become about persona. Granted, where Jon Stewart was doing comedy based on Fox News in the years following 
9-11, which was quite funny and necessary, it's almost as if media has taken off from his comedy show and made it about themselves. Objectivity be gone. I think so. I think too, the media has become also a source of entertainment because if you look at how they go about crafting stories or just how their coverage, if you take a step back and you look at the coverage generally, there's always a villain. Um, right now and for the past several years, it's been Russia. Now it seems like that's changing to possibly China now, but there's always a villain, somebody to be demonized. Um, and I, you're right about the point of dividing people. You know, Russiagate really divided the left and right. It divided the left as well because we saw the, I would say, more progressive left see through what was really happening here and that this was a huge distraction and um, a, an incredible waste of tax dollars. But the truth is, is that division among the public among the working class, anybody who is not within this top one ruling elite, top 1% ruling elite, division among the public only serves and benefits those in power. They want us to be at odds with each other, not actively working together to rise up and really initiate some positive change. So it's really disheartening even when I see sometimes people who pretty much agree on just about everything or have the same overall goals within journalism uh, attack each other because it's not useful and it's not beneficial. Um, with Russiagate, it is uh, quite interesting to me that e you're right, even after this report uh, being made public and seeing that there's not evidence to suggest that there was any meaningful interference or interference that could have swayed the election, that it's still being talked about and it's still acceptable. I feel like we will look back at this time in history and view these, you know, Rachel Maddow pieces where she's going off about the so-called Russian interference. I think we're going to look back at it as like historical propaganda pieces. That's kind of how I, I perceive it. Um, well, we saw I, I this hope. earlier this month, didn't we? January 6th. Oh my God, I'm writing this piece still about it because I'm having to find people who were at the march. I'm talking to them. Um, it was a protest. Yes, there were people who went into the Congress illegally. We know that was bad. Breaking and entering is bad. Vandalism is bad. Got it. Okay, that's the only news we were given. There were tens of thousands of people in Washington and we didn't hear a peep about what they were there for. And me, <laughs> as someone on the left, I wanna know why people were marching in Washington, whatever their political persuasion, how on earth are we supposed to have any kind of democratic society if we have a media that's basically brandishing them as racist, homophobe, trans, whatever. They're phobes of various forms, according to MSNBC, CNN. But that was rather far from the truth. Yeah, I think so. I, I was really uh, disturbed by the media coverage of this because I had friends who were there that day. They were there in a journalistic capacity, not participating. And they said what was reported by many of the mainstream press and even some independent media who, who weren't even there, but were still reporting on this and not reporting accurately. Um, there really wasn't a whole lot of violence. While there was some, it was largely like a peaceful event. And 
I know it's hard to like even hear that right now because we've only seen a lot of the violence and people were killed and uh, it was really serious what happened on that day. But um, what is happening with that event? The January 6th event was used to justify and still is being used to justify a heavy military and National Guard presence in DC. It's also being used to justify possible bills being proposed that call to deprogram people on the right and Trump supporters and also to uh, further censor people online. But if you look at who was uh, protesting that day, it shouldn't be a shock that people were, were there that day because first of all, um, the lockdowns and this uh, COVID crisis and the government's reaction to it, people can no longer go to work. Uh, they're not being given the proper relief that they need. I mean, we got 600 bucks initially and there is just, you ruin their livelihoods they can't see their families, they can't have uh, a meaningful life and, and actually go out there and enjoy life. And they also feel at this point that their vote doesn't matter either because um, there is evidence to suggest that this election, um, that there was serious fraud happening with this election. Bill Binney, the former technical director of the NSA said there was election fraud. If Bill Binney says there was election fraud, in my opinion, that means there was election fraud. Um, again, he was the former technical director of the NSA. But the point is, is that, you know, you have people who are so upset, of course, they're going to protest. Um, but again, it's being used to justify some really Orwellian legislation that, that really bothers me. And, um, it, you know, we see other protests that happen throughout the country that have been very, that have had violence as well but we're not having the same critical approach that we're having when it comes to the January 6th event. Some of the newscasters in the neoliberal media were supportive. There were even politicians taking a knee. Anyone who saw the BLM protests on camera, objectively speaking, would have seen largely peaceful protests. But we were shown that optic, weren't we? We weren't given five days of coverage of a sliver of the people who broke the law. In fact, I've been in protests myself. Um, I've been in protests so large, I have no idea if there were people who were violent. This was even before the days of social media and instant gratification from all things you know, said and done. But I do know that when you go to protests, even let's say taking a bus from New York to DC, yeah, oftentimes you'll have people saying, this is, these are the do's, these are the don'ts, these are the warning signs. If you hear this, then do that. But that's just par for the course of protests. Some people do not behave responsibly. I mean, even outside of protests. Somehow though, the media has held the sliver of people, a hundred-ish people who broke and entered into the Congress. Again, do not agree with that, but... That became the focus. And when you look at the media, they knew days and weeks before that this protest was going to take place. So, of course, when I'm watching this unfold, I'm thinking, where is the police presence? They knew this was happening. One does get a little suspicious as to what degree this was allowed to happen. Um, not to you know, throw out conspiracies, but that is a question. 
And then, of course, you know, the immediate comparisons with last summer's protests, the spring and summer's protests, people would say, oh, but if black people were doing this, well, wait a sec. There were five people, including an officer, killed on the 6th of January. So we can't say that the police were not nonviolent. <laughs> Whether or not they used justified force will be, you know, discovered in investigations. But when you start to, you know, talk to people who were there and you see the creds, these were not KKK hood wearing racists. Yet that is how MSNBC chooses to see this. This is CNN too. I mean, this morning I went to CNN, Taylor. I kid you not, I made a mock-up of my editing CNN's cover story because most of their stories are about Donald Trump. I kid you not. Jim Acosta, I've never seen Trump like this. Fauci and Burks tell interviewers about the nonsense of the Trump years. These are all separate stories. Trump advisors said former president is not considering launching a third party. Trump got 96% of the vote in this Texas county. What its residents think of Joe Biden, right? And it's, oh, members quit sad Mar-a-Lago. Sad is in quotes. But it's it's like the guy's not president anymore and the liberal media is very obsessed with him. Yeah, there is a hyper focus on Trump. They did that during the 2016 election. You could say that that could have actually helped him during 2016, but there's been a determination among the media to uh, demonize Trump and demonize Trump supporters as well without really looking at the bigger picture as to how someone like him got into power in the first place. I think it says a lot. I think it says a lot. Um, and they're not thinking critically about this. And I think they're doing that on purpose. One thing I want to mention as well, um, with the January 6th protest, we knew that this was going to happen ahead of time. That is correct. In fact, uh, this transition integrity project, which um, is basically a, a project that includes former members uh, close to the Obama administration and the Clinton administrations, people that are very um, embedded within the democratic establishment make up this transition integrity project, which um, was really put together over the past several years, like a couple years prior to the 2020 election, but after Trump got elected. And it is, it, it basically included four different scenarios um, of how the 2020 election could result in. Each of the scenarios, I think, had a um, assumption that Trump would not leave office if he wasn't uh, reelected, that he would not leave office. And then this would um, create for mass chaos and there would be uh, so many protests throughout the country. And I find that really suspicious that there was already this assumption within this transition integrity project and that there was already this assumption that there was going to be these white supremacist protests. And then of course we saw on January 6th, there was a protest and they're calling everybody who was a part of this, a white supremacist and um, fascist and whatever, what have you. Um, I, I find that really suspicious because it is true that the intelligence community will infiltrate groups to make them look bad to the public and to also allow for a possible investigation into activist groups. It's something that does happen. Um, I'm not saying that there's a whole lot of evidence to show that that's happening here, but it's something that does 
it does happen. And what I was really disturbed about was the fact that the media was acting on behalf of the police and law enforcement, which is not their job. They were helping to identify these protesters and like asking for tips. I, I thought that I was horrified by that. It is not their job to do that. And that's exactly what they were doing. Um, it is the job of the, the media to hold to account law enforcement and the establishment and the intelligence community. And they were working with them to find these individuals. And that horrified me. We're seeing this with Biden already, even before he took office, he was appointing people from big tech into his inner circle, be it directly into the cabinet or second in charge, third in charge. And we're seeing a huge conflation of big tech with the defense industry or the military complex, as Dragonfly showed many years ago when Google employees boycotted their own company and said, we refuse to be part of the, making the software that operates the drones that you're using in Pakistan. This was under Obama. That got thrown out. It went to another company, <laughs> Palantir, who Biden has also nominated someone from that company. He's got his inner circle loaded with people from big, big tech corporations. And it's no coincidence that it's big tech that is banning left, right, and center now the voices of many people. They took down a socialist website from the UK, put it back up after there was a mass outrage. But if you're one of the many unlucky people not to have enough people to kick up a storm for you, you're going to be in trouble. You'll be out of a social media account. And this is happening in terms of who's able to speak, who is being branded a fascist. They say that Trump's account had to be shut down because he advocated for violence. I have not seen that. This is a problem. I would love to agree with people and say, yes, he did. Yeah, you know, but I'm reading the evidence. I'm listening to his words. I'm seeing him. He said, uh, I know many of you are going to march peacefully towards, you know, the Capitol. I don't see where he said, break and enter the Capitol, but no, this has been, you know, this is very Orwellian here where we are being lied to by major media and people who have computers, internet connections are refusing to read what he said. That bothers me on a very gut level. Once upon a time, we could argue, oh, but they live in Iowa and they don't have access to major papers like the New York Times. No, now we've got the New York Times lying. You're right. Uh, big tech is working alongside the intelligence community and the establishment, for in, right now, particularly the Democratic establishment. But I want to be clear that both the Republican and Democrats are one and the same. But um, yes, yeah, so what Jack Dorsey, who is the uh, CEO of Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg, of course, of Facebook, these individuals and their staff at Twitter and Facebook are acting as uh, some sort of uh, authority on what is acceptable and what is unacceptable speech. And Trump was banned from Twitter. And this was while he was still president. And I have a really big problem with this, regardless of whether or not you like uh, Trump's policies or you, were, you follow him on Twitter or want to hear what he has to say. He was the president of the United States, and it was a disservice to the American people in the public 
to ban him from Twitter because we can't communicate with him through Twitter. I mean, we could tweet at him. I'm not saying that that is going to make a huge difference, but access to elected leaders and people in positions of power is so important. And so by banning Trump, it removed our access uh, to the president. Julian Assange was not pardoned last Tuesday. And of course, this was something that I was really hoping for. And um, so many people were, there was a huge push within the Free Assange uh, movement and community to encourage the president to pardon Assange. And that final day when the pardons were issued, so many of us went to Twitter and were constantly tweeting out messages uh, to Trump's inner circle to please pardon Julian Assange. And if Trump were on Twitter, he would perhaps be able to see these responses from people. He would see that Assange was trending all day long, practically. I'm not saying that that necessarily means that that is why Assange wasn't pardoned. That's not what I'm saying at all, but there's an overall point to be made here. Also, there was a leaked phone call between Jack Dorsey, again, the CEO of Twitter and his staff. I think it was a Zoom call that was leaked. And this was uh, Jack speaking about um, that he, he was basically admitting that this is more than Trump. He said that this will extend beyond just Trump. We are focused on uh, removing his, his account, but there will be other users who are removed and this will continue throughout um, the next several months and beyond the inauguration. But another point here is that Jack Dorsey's official response on Twitter, which he posted about the uh, decision to suspend the president's Twitter account, he said that, quote, offline harm as a result of online speech is demonstrably real, end quote. This is a really broad statement that can be applied to just about anything anyone could say. I mean, you can interpret a lot of statements to, to seem like violence. I mean, or it could be misconstrued that way if you want it. If you really wanted to, it could be misconstrued. And I have a problem with this because what is happening here is that they're assuming that there is some causal relationship between something said online in real world violence. And I think that that's too big of a conclusion to make. And I feel like it's really irresponsible. And it this is a lot of power to be giving Jack Dorsey and the staff at Twitter. Well, certainly they are not elected officials. They're not politicians. And yet they've taken the fiat handed to them to go ahead and make these kinds of choices of who can and who cannot participate in the public square. Arguably, especially under lockdown this past year, that's it. That's it for most people. So what are the answers to this as well? I mean, there was a reason that Trump was aiming at certain types of legislation that might have had an effect on reducing the power of big tech companies. I sometimes wonder also if this last minute push against him was not largely linked to his criticism of big technology because these companies more than the government now, I mean, these gov companies are more powerful and more wealthy than most of the countries on the planet. They are, they are. And there has been uh, some articles where there's been investigations into Google's links to the intelligence community, which are very strong. And Google is so powerful. If we think about it, I try to avoid using this phrase, but at least uh, something that's often said in uh, American English is, hey, why don't you just go Google that? 
Google it. It's become also uh, a verb as well. And um, that's how powerful this company is. So I try to avoid actually saying that now, but it's, it's such a powerful company. They have such a uh, monopoly over free speech. And one of there's been a push to repeal Section 230 of the CDA, which was um, established in 1996. This was during the early years of the widespread use of the internet. Uh, I do think that the movement to completely repeal Section 230 would be a mistake, but there is uh, an opportunity for some reform. Essentially, it includes two, pro two provisions, and this I'm speaking about this very uh, broadly, but number one, it says that ISPs or other third-party content providers cannot be treated as the publisher, and therefore they're not responsible for any third-party content. So if, I, if somebody were to post something illegal on Twitter, Jack Dorsey and the staff at Twitter or the owners of Twitter cannot be held legally responsible. That seems like a pretty good, reasonable uh, provision. However, it also includes another aspect to it where it has this Good Samaritan policy where ISPs and other online platforms can moderate content so they can block content or screen content that is deemed to be harassment or offensive and they have to do this on good faith. So somebody's being harassed online, these uh, ISPs and third-party content providers can remove that content, but this has to be done in good faith and it's not being done in good faith. Essentially, Dorsey, Zuckerberg are deeming what they believe to be fake news as harmful content and then they are removing it. Uh, it it's it's being abused. So as I said, repealing Section 230 completely would be a mistake because then ISPs would be responsible for third-party content and they would most likely probably just choose not to allow third-party content on their site. Um, but we do need to revisit this Good Samaritan provision, which does give a lot of power to these companies. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I wrote about Section 230 about two or three years ago in the redrafting of NAFTA. I don't know if you're aware that the big tech companies were invited, seated at the table to decide about the new NAFTA, which is the, you know, um, well, the replacement for it, essentially. And when this happened, Section 230 came up as an issue. It's very strange that, well, Google has argued its right to restrict political content, citing the First Amendment protection for a publisher's editorial judgments. Twitter also did this at the time, saying as a publisher, they have the right to edit. But why these tech giants have secured the right to legal immunity under Section 230, which they regularly cite, none of them are transparent about the censorship. So, you know, I was covering a story of an, uh, a Canadian uh, journalist, writer, Megan Murphy, who was kicked off Twitter. She's actually sued Twitter and her case is coming back up at a higher court shortly. And... It's weird that no one has been paying attention to all the feminists getting kicked off Twitter in recent years, but now it's come full circle. If Twitter can kick off 
the president of one of the most powerful countries in the world, that is a problem. And when people like, you know, Rachel Maddow can repeat absolute fodder. I mean, Russiagate was disproven. There was no Russiagate. So why is it that we're, our choices now are to be silenced or to get sheer propaganda from MSNBC and other sources? Or as I found you, I was so relieved to find someone covering the Assange trial because the Guardian didn't seem to feel that compelled to cover the trial very much. It had a few pieces in the fall, that's it. And these are basic journalistic ethics at core here. As you point out, Snowden wasn't a journalist, but even then the Obama era legislation against whistleblowing, against journalists, is something that everyone who voted for Biden should be alarmed by. And they're not. And they're not because the very thing we're talking about or that others are talking about is not getting to them because they're watching Rachel Maddow have hissy fits. Yeah, so I'm not advocating for Rachel Maddow to be removed, but honestly, if they were to apply the logic that they are using to remove um, the president, well, former President Trump and uh, other right-wing uh, journalists and also the other socialist platform I saw was taken down, if they were to apply the same logic, they would be taking down Rachel Maddow, who is constantly repeating uh it will did for a very long time this story that we know is not true this uh russian uh hoax but um the the reason why nobody is paying attention to what's to the uh, policies and the stance of joe biden is because they're just focused on not no longer uh having trump in office that's the focus i feel that people really voted not for biden but they were voting against trump nobody was excited about biden a year ago I'm pretty sure that there was not um, an overwhelming amount of support for Biden to be elected, neither with Kamala Harris, um, who was not liked by uh, many people on the left. Including um, Biden himself. <laughs> exactly. The two of them did not get along. I mean, she called him out on his segregationist policies, uh, which was necessary. Uh, she was also called out, too, on this, uh, you know, her, her time as a prosecutor in California was uh, pretty, pretty bad because she blocked evidence um, that would allow for innocent people to be taken off of death row. She also would incarcerate people for decades or several, several years um, just for having small amounts of cannabis on them. And then when asked about using cannabis, she laughed about it. And thought it was funny. She's just a callous person, and you know people just forget because it's no longer Trump. Uh, the focus is so so much on Trump that they can't even see clearly. And unfortunately, it's I feel like it's going to be like the Bush Obama years again. The Bush years, foreign policy wise, I think unfortunately are, are very similar to that. Let's say it's very similar, and I think that the media is going to fall asleep um, as they did with. Uh, Obama. I think they're going to fall asleep and they're not going to really uh, hold him accountable. Well, certainly it's not happening. I posted an article or a, a blip from Sky News Australia. The only place I could find any criticism of Biden and they are calling out some of his promises that he's already failed on, such as 
clamping down on coronavirus. He's basically thrown that out the window. And it's interesting because you won't find the same criticism in North American papers. Uh, everyone's cheering about, yes, great that he pulled out of the deal with Canada. And Canadian you know, environmentalists have been arguing against tar sands and this very same project. So great. I mean, there are some pluses that you know, Biden signing off on the, you know, Paris uh, Accord, great. But there, there's some irony in, you know, he's removed the ban from Muslim countries, <laughs> the very ban that he didn't say a damn thing about. I don't know if you remember special registration that began in 2002. This is how the 14,000 Muslim men were disappeared. The government required certain immigrants from certain countries. They were all from Muslim countries with the exception of North Korea and Iran having to come and register. And if they were even a half a minute in the country on a tourist visa or a, a visa that hadn't been completely resolved, they were thrown in a jail. And Biden was silent on this. And we know who voted against the war in Iraq. One of our politicians, out of all of the politicians, one spoke against it. So there's a lot of irony in these 17 bills he's signing off on and the media's love fest with him. It's bizarre to watch because there's absolutely no, no word on Yemen. Oh my God, Yemen? <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> I know, it's a, it, it's a disaster. It's truly a disaster, and it's something that's not talked about enough. Um, I've seen the photos. Um, it's heartbreaking to see what's happening. Absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. And you know, the one thing that Trump was doing was, you know, trying to pull out of the Middle East. He didn't start another war, which is a positive thing and unusual for a U.S. president. But um, you know, we still had we still had tensions with. Iran with the assassination of the Iranian general, Qasem Soleimani. I really thought this is about a year ago. I really thought at that time that we were going to be going and in, heading into a war. We possibly could be now. But, um, you know, there I saw there was a push or call to put more troops in the Middle East. And I just think about all the lives that are going to be to be lost. And it's just haven't we learned anything? Hasn't the media learned anything? I mean, why aren't they screaming about this? Um, and of course, as I said earlier, early on, I, I think it's because it's just known that you don't question uh, this neoliberal uh, establishment narrative that you're supposed to keep pushing. So I think it's just something that is perhaps understood. But, um, you know, foreign policy, it's, we're in a strange position, I think, that foreign policy under, uh, under Biden could possibly be way worse than uh, foreign policy under Trump. Now, to be clear, under Trump, there were many US-backed coups, especially in um, South America, uh, in Venezuela is standing out to me in particular. So while I wanna make clear that things were not uh, great, there were pretty much the continuation of a typical US foreign policy under the Trump uh, era. I think with Biden, we're headed, as I said earlier, for the possibly the Bush years again. Biden's already expressed support for the Venezuelan leader. So yeah, it, it looks really bad for 
any kind of awareness of our historical mistakes and where we're going in the future. It looks like it's just going to be a rinse and repeat of the previous administrations. Um, I'm also very worried about how he's using the events of 6 January to criminalize political dissent. Yes, that is exactly what's happening here. January 6th, I feel that this is being used to roll out um, the criminalization of certain speech, also to demonize a certain group within the population, uh, you know, people who are Trump supporters and who are maybe on the right, um, seeking to demonize them, as well as pass legislation to deprogram people and to silence uh, dissent. It's really disturbing to see some people on the left cheer this on because what they're not realizing is that it is already affecting people on the left as well. There have been uh, leftist organizations that have been shut down and that have been censored. But the point in my view is for all forms of dissent to be viewed as domestic terrorism because that is what they are calling the events of January 6th, domestic terrorism. And they're calling it an insurrection, uh, which is, it was, I don't, what I saw does not, I, I don't think that that qualifies by any means. Um, but again, it, it's being used as sort of like a pretext to, to criminalize any forms of dissent for the safety of the country. People hear national security and they, they panic and uh, all critical thought goes out the door. We're also living in a time where everyone's so worried about either if they're going to get a virus or go broke. And I say or because what COVID-19 has evidence like an x-ray to society are the haves and have nots. It's also interesting to see what side of the political spectrum is pro-lockdown what side of the haves and have-nots is pro-lockdown and which ones are fighting back. It's not a, it's, it's a no-brainer. I mean, you don't have to have a PhD in economics to figure out why people want to work, right? I mean, who wouldn't like a, a year-long vacation, paid vacation? But we're finding out people aren't getting the year-long paid vacation. Right. This is unsustainable. Lockdowns, in my view, are unsustainable. There is no way that the, uh, and I'm speaking for the U.S. government that's most familiar with, what I'm most familiar with, there is no way that this could be uh, maintained, that these businesses could be shut down and that people could continue to live um, as they did before. That's just ridiculous. The government uh, can't tell people to not go to work and tell them they have to stay home, but not compensate them. That is madness to me. And uh, not only does this have problems for the economy, but it also has impacts on people's mental health. Uh, keeping somebody locked down and confined for you know, almost a year is going to impact people in a very significant way. And this science is suggesting that lockdowns are not the way to go either. And um, it seems that we are treating this virus differently than we have treated any other virus in history. Why are, why are we treating this so differently? That's, that's the key question here, because I think it's not about the virus. I think it's about this great reset agenda that they're not even hiding anymore. They're not even hiding the fact that they have this, um, what I call like a technocracy that they're trying to roll out. 
Well, a lot of people like to say, you know, such ideas are conspiracy theory. But then at the same time, when you start to see what governments are offering, as you just mentioned, I mean, you you either have to pay people not to go out and make a living, you have to provide for them, or you have to let them go out. And historically, there's never been an era of locking up an entire society as we are seeing. And this is causing grave fallout, not just to economies, but to mental health, uh, excessively to mental health. There was just a study released, I believe it was on Friday, that showed that people over 50 are suffering greatly from depression. Uh, that's a no-brainer, because on the one hand, they're worried about dying of a disease that's been hyper-mediatized, and on the other, they're worried that they're going to be dying in a virtual prison. I mean, you know, these are very severe realities that the media is presenting them with. But I've been speaking with a lot of these scientists. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford, he's gone over the reasons why these lockdowns are extremely harmful, especially to the poorest of our societies. And the fallout, because he's a medical doctor, but he's also a, an economist. And it's interesting when you start to look at this from a humanitarian perspective, we're looking at people who live from even the trickle-down effect of Western dollars. There are people in countries that most of us have never been to who are affected by massive poverty. And this is hardly a blip on the radar. Instead, we got around March, April, loads of articles about how clean Venice's canals were. I wrote about this because I found it a bit cynical that this was the focus. Yes, ecology is important, but little was made of human rights. I myself had pitches outright refused. I'm quoting, we can't run something like this because it would give the idea that we're COVID deniers, end quote. <laughs> yeah. How do people learn about what's going on if we're going to just beat one horse to death? Right. I think um, a big problem here is that anybody who questions the government's response to COVID-19 is automatically viewed as somebody who's denying COVID. Um, that is what the media has been doing a really good job of is linking those two things together. And I think, at least for myself, I'm getting to a point now where I'm just saying, you know what, I'm not, uh, I'm no longer going to be uh, concerned about the, not that I really was ever, to be honest, but um, I'm, I'm really not concerned about if it's viewed that I'm a co denying COVID because I'm critical of the government's response. Number one, I'm not denying COVID it's a virus, it's a real virus, um, but the response is uh, inappropriate and it's absolutely unreasonable. And why, after the media has lied about so much, lied us into every single war, they lie about so much uh, that goes on in this world, why are they suddenly being honest now about COVID-19? Why, like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Why are they being honest now? It's because they're not being honest. Uh, these lockdowns are uh, destructive. They are, in my view, potentially designed to destroy small businesses. And with the end goal of only these huge corporations uh, still 
being in effect or still being up and running so that we as uh, people have to then uh, work for these corporations. I don't trust any crisis uh, that results in only uh, big corporations being able to survive it. I just find that extremely, uh, extremely suspect. And again, this is not something that is conspiracy. The World Economic Forum is very loud and clear about their intentions for a post-coronavirus world, and they want to have the Great Reset, which is a globalist economy. They um, they're not hiding this. It's not a conspiracy. It's reality, and it's time for everybody to wake up. Well, certainly, I think uh, canceling our Amazon accounts is a start. Uh, I remember, was it last year? No, it might have been the year before uh, when Trump was basically closing down certain agreements with China, such as solar cell plants. He wanted solar cell companies in the U.S. to be making solar cells. The liberal media criticized this. They tried to make it out as racist. And I looked at this and I thought, wait a sec, what he's saying is completely logical. Shouldn't we be moving towards a more local economy given the ecological problems? On the one hand, he was criticized to death about his recension from the Paris Climate Accord. Okay. But then on the other, he makes moves to localize businesses, to bring back jobs to America as part of his MAGA motto. And people were on the left were criticizing it. Personally, I mean, looking at this, I thought that wasn't a bad idea, that maybe we should have more politicians speaking about bringing back production locally. As some economists have already said, paying for labor in China will soon cost more than in America anyways, right? We saw this with the slow descent of outsourcing from Mexico all the way down. You can just see it geographically. Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, it went, uh, Honduras I skipped, sorry, and then El Salvador and Guatemala. And that was the trajectory of how countries were used as the backyard to the US. I'm quoting Ronald Reagan there, by the way. And um, as the price of labor became too expensive, laborers would, well, the companies would move further south. Um, and we saw this also with, you know, corn being dumped by Mexican farmers because of NAFTA agreements. So you've got this huge mess of the myth of global equality, which it was a myth, uh, where Google, Facebook, and Twitter are brought to the board, the drawing board to redraft NAFTA three years ago. And now everyone's wondering why Jeff Bezos is, is rolling in money. It's, it's a no-brainer. It was engineered this way. And, and this is being thought of as conspiracy, but it's actually the reality. It's not the conspiracy. The conspiracy is refusing to view the reality, no? Yeah, I think so. Uh, anything, anybody who is questioning, again, the mainstream uh, talking points is going to be labeled a conspiracy theorist. And it's just to uh, discredit anyone who is actually speaking truths that they don't want to really be talked about in an honest in a very honest way and unfortunately it's somewhat effective um i think that the criticisms of trump were sometimes just to criticize trump because it was 
fashionable and because it was the thing to do. I don't think, I often do think that a lot of it, not all of it, because there are legitimate criticisms, of course, um, but much of it, I think, was just to, to criticize Trump himself versus really the policies here. Because I, again, I think all critical thinking has just gone out the door. And one thing that the big tech companies are doing that I find really disturbing, and it's also an insult to the public, is they're putting labels and notices on certain pieces of information. Um, I'm not endorsing QAnon. I think it's uh, probably a, a, a probably a psyop. Uh, there's been a lot of evidence to suggest that, um, but I'm not endorsing QAnon. I think it's absolute, you know, nonsense. And there's a, a lot to investigate when it comes to that. But they're putting notices on anything that has the word QAnon in it, and they're saying QAnon is a conspiracy theory, where and I'm not quoting here, I'm paraphrasing. QAnon is a conspiracy uh, theorist group that believes that the elite are reptilian or blah, 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 like just all these ridiculous claims. And it's like, why do you even have to put notices on pieces of information? It's such an insult. Like we could look at something as an informed and educated public and see, see it for what it is. Why are they putting notices on anything that says 2020 US election with a link to this has been disputed uh, by many sources. Our media is already mediatized. Even those titles I read for you from CNN this morning, half of them, when you click open, the title doesn't match the story. You know, they, the titles are often this way for about 20 years now, where they'll say, you know, uh, Mueller report hints at Russiagate fraud, you know, and then you go in and you find out that it's actually the opposite. <laughs> they said there's no conclusive evidence. So that's not hinting at anything. Um, the, the playing with words and then our refusal to expand media. I tell people all the time who want to have a go on my Facebook page and everyone's welcome to have a go there, mind you. But I say, expand your reading sources, read across. I mean, I read in many languages, so I'm always reading. I find out about things. I remember once I was, you know, writing Chomsky and he told me to read the Wall Street Journal, which I thought was a right-wing paper, but hey, learn a lot from reading the Wall Street Journal. The thing is, is we are not taught to read across a political spectrum. People want the echo chamber and it's gotten worse since Russiagate and WMD. Because now people do not want to admit they got it wrong. Yeah. I mean, what you said at the beginning today is what I said to someone uh, yesterday or this morning. I said, people voted not for Biden. They voted against Trump. And that's going to lead to a whole new goulash of problems because you can't back someone because you hate the enemy and you hate the enemy of your enemy, you know, so to speak. And then you like this guy because he's just offering the next best thing. Biden comes with so many problems, not just for Americans, not just for coronavirus. He comes with a well-known set of problems because he's been in, in politics for a lot longer than Donald J. Trump. And we see who he surrounded himself with. This looks like a very war hawk future for us. I hope it's not. And Yet people are banging on. I, I've had so many people just say to me in the last 24 hours, but Trump this, Trump that. And I'm thinking, but we're talking about Biden. Leave Trump. Trump delusion syndrome has to go away at some point. 
let's discuss the person you voted for and how on earth is this going to support what you think is a progressive leftist agenda? Because I'm not seeing it. Biden in the UK would be considered a far right candidate by any measure. I agree. I agree. I mean, what is left and what is right in the United States is very different in the rest of the world. Um, even the yeah, Biden for certain could be viewed um, as, a, as a very right wing candidate in Europe. Even some have told me from your Europeans have told me that even Bernie Sanders actually could be viewed as like mod, like very moderate, whereas in the United States, um, he is viewed by many uh, on both sides of the aisle to be very, very far left. That's because our perception here is a little bit different. Um, but the problem is it goes back to this division that we're seeing. You're right in saying that people do not consume news that has a political, uh, that has, um, or people often do not consume news that presents an opposing viewpoint uh, to their own. It's something really important that people do do. It's actually something I like to do. Um, I do like to look at the different perspectives to see what um, is being stated. And also too, I think that um, perspectives can change over time as we learn more. And you have to be able to change your perspective as you learn more. That's the problem in politics is that people could be presented with opposing information and they're still going to reject it. Kind of what we saw what happened with uh, Russiagate. They were presented with uh, information that of course there was no evidence to suggest that there was significant election interference, um, yet they chose to ignore that information. And that's a huge problem and we can't be stuck down this trap. It also goes back to the uh, larger point that division among the left and the right and the public and the general public serves those in power. And as long as we're divided, we're gonna be fighting each other instead of fighting the establishment and our true enemies. I know that's a very strong word uh, to use enemy, but our true, the, our true um, oppressor is not going to be uh, dealt with if we are constantly or fought against if we are constantly fighting with each other. Well, it's, it's absolutely spot on. I mean, CNN ran a piece two or three weeks ago with Elon Musk on, you know, a title piece and the rich, one of the richest men, now, blah, blah, blah. And that's why are we revering people like this. this. This is the enemy, so to speak. And what people are angry at me about, you know, when I speak out about 6 January, as I say, these were largely working class Americans. <gasps> no, they were not. They were wealthy. Nah, no, wealthy Republicans have ranches and <laughs> Mar-a-Lago to go to. You know, these were largely working class people. And let's face it, in an unprecedented time in history over the last hundred years, very rarely have offices been inundated by previously middle-class people who find themselves poor because of this pandemic or not even the pandemic because of horrible political choices made by our governments. Here's a quote for you from Mark Crispin Miller's Vile Acts of Evil published in 2009. He writes, Media manipulation in the US today is more efficient than it was in Nazi Germany because here we have the pretense that we are getting all the information we want. That misconception prevents people from even looking for the truth, end quote. And that's what I think has happened. Everyone's set with their Rachel Maddow. You know, there are people who only watch her or who only watch you know, another show. 
They get all their news from this talking head. It's their Bible. And they run with it and they don't look further. They really do believe this framed content. How can we get people to read outside of major media? That's a great question. So I think... Again, uh, one of the problems that you touched on was the fact that people are consistently going to a, a single individual or one outlet to receive all of their news. And they're also not seeing that there is um, a problem with that. They think that they are actually getting truthful information and they become fans of the people who are providing them with uh, news. Fortunately, um, a lot of the statistics coming from Neiman and Pew is that more and more people are becoming distrustful of the mainstream in corporate press, uh, probably not enough people, but uh, we're, we're seeing that happen. We're seeing especially young people like the Gen Z uh, people who are getting their news from social media and they're getting their news from alternative platforms on YouTube. So that's a great start. I think that one of the threats to this though is because people are going to their cell phones and social media and YouTube to consume their news, I've been seeing mainstream news organizations like Fox, MSNBC, CNN, be favored by the algorithms in YouTube. So if you look up some news topic, you're going to be seeing the CNN coverage of it before you're maybe going to see uh, a, an independent organization. So that is a real threat there. So I think alternative platforms is an important thing. Um, going to alternative platforms that don't manipulate uh, what information you can and cannot see. I think that as the oppression continues, and I don't, I don't want it to continue, that sounds very negative, but as things maybe just continue down the same path with Biden, uh, if people eventually wake up, um, maybe they'll realize, you know, we've been lied to once again by the mainstream press. And I think that with continued oppression, and hardship is when people rise up even stronger. So uh, I think again, going to alternative platforms and sites to receive your news is um, the best way to go. I'm actually a part of a project right now that has been endorsed by Chris Hedges, Jimmy Dore, um, Peter Lavelle, as well as Bill Binney. Um, it's called Panquake. It's an alternative social media platform that solves the problems that we have with our, our current uh, media. We just had a tech release come out that explains in greater depth the uh, technical architecture of the site, but it seeks to solve all of these problems that we have um, with our social media. So there are solutions out there and um, we just have to put them into action. Well, this sounds very positive. I. I am hopeful that things get better, but I also think that things will continue to get worse. Uh, for many reasons, partly psychological, I think we have a huge problem as a society to face, and I include the friends arguing on my wall to include one lovely IRL friend of mine. I think it's hard to admit you you voted for the less good, you know, the less bad candidate, and that doesn't mean that you have to be stuck praising him for the next four years. Please don't do that to me. I think it's important that we remain critical including of the candidates that we love, okay? I, I think the best thing one can do for one's, you know, democracy or in Trumpian language for one's country, to be a patriot, whatever language you, you prefer, 
the best thing you can do is to criticize your democratic processes constantly. Criticism is actually not a negative thing. I think a lot of people see criticism as negative. Well, maybe in an interpersonal relationship, yes, that can be very bad. But I think when it comes to public mechanisms, it's only good because we have to keep ourselves in check, especially us. I mean, reporting on current events, we have to be able to go and say, this is going on. And we have to be able to assess what's going on by various valences of even truth, logic, science. We've seen a huge backlash of, of science in recent years. Uh, Flat Earthery has made it big, seriously. <laughs> There's a video on, on Netflix about this. It's quite frightening. Um, identity politics have far outweighed the focus of any leftist media in, in favor of you know, going on about one's pronouns instead of social class, poverty. I was pretty sure last March that finally we'd see leftist publications aiming for a discussion about renters' rights, housing rights, ending private rentals. You know, nothing, nothing. Italy didn't even get around to protecting renters until quite recently. And the renters aren't even fully protected. The same in the States. Uh, New York has a great, you know, housing organization. Their people are fighting. I get regular updates from them, but I'm not hopeful because we have now the middle class that's either profiting from lockdown or making quite a fall from their current socioeconomic status. And as I mentioned earlier, welfare offices are finding people who were previously middle class now completely dispossessed especially if they're not, you know, homeowners. So we've got a paradox where left and right are in, in, indistinguishable at times or they're actually switching paths. Uh, the Democrats speak very little about social and, and political equality. They talk about the hallmarks of it in identity politics, but they don't actually talk about poverty. Who was talking about poverty this past year? I've... I swear, I, I, you could have shot me. I, the, the Republicans were talking more about the interests of the working class as a party than the Democrats, and that, that has still shocked me. And, and we're not seeing that truth being reflected in objective media. That's, that's what's worrying me. So I don't think things are going to get better until Americans start reading further askance of mainstream media and start to understand that they got it wrong thinking that there's a demonic party and there's a good party. I think when we figure out that both parties are part of the same problem, <laughs> we might get somewhere, no? I 100% agree. I 100% agree. It's really uh, the public, the um, common person, and it is the establishment. And uh, again, as I said, we, if we band together, uh, we, we can actually really achieve something. But once we get into these different uh, teams, if you will, it's almost like, uh, like sports or something where it's, you know, Democrats versus Republican or, or left versus right. But at the end of the day, it's important to remember that the Democrats and Republicans that we're seeing in, in Congress and who are elected leaders, they're really all uh, working together. And unfortunately, 
much of what they're doing isn't to our benefit. Uh, but if we hold their if we hold them to account, uh, which is the job of journalists, we hold them to account and they know that they're going to be held accountable if they don't meet their promises. That I think is when we can start really seeing some change happening. If they know that they will be questioned um, when they don't deliver on their policies or their promises.